Welcome to another episode of the Christian Combatives Podcast. This is actually the third part of a three-hour-long conversation that we had between myself, Stigma, and Sola Ecclesia on a variety of topics. In this conversation in particular, we wanted to focus on Christian masculinity, what it means to be a man, what it means to be masculine according to the Bible, but also femininity and feminism. So the conversation starts out when we're discussing feminism and the, the various ways that society has tried to define femininity or define away femininity and then get into what it means to be masculine and, and what traits should be exemplified and trained to be a, a masculine Christian. This episode was also hosted on the Christian Discord server Christcord. If you'd like to join, it's discord.gg forward slash Christian, discord.gg forward slash Christian. Enjoy. What does it mean to be to be masculine and kind of the undervalued aspect of masculinity and and part of you were talking about before is is part of it's it's feminism is downplaying femininity you, you i think you said it was like a fixation a fetishization of masculinity yeah, for, masculine. right right it's, we it's like they took it's quite ironic they claim to be rebelling against the traditional gender concepts but then they they take the there's this medieval idea, and I don't think the medievals always meant it in a misogynistic way. Again, I think we talked about that nuance, but um, they take this say caricature of the medieval notion where you associate femininity with the negative. Feminine femininity is weakness. Femininity is 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 being stupid and emotional, and it's it's it just undervaluing it. And men men get all the glory. Women are just sort of their servants. Women need to stay in the house wearing veils and just do all of the work, and, and men go off and get the glory and do all of the strong things. And, um, and then the feminists just take that. They, they accept it. They believe it. And then th they decide that that means women need to be masculine. Instead of looking at, well, no, look at all of, you can look at the great things women do, but women can excel in the feminine role. And that's where I, I consider myself an anti-feminist because I know the history of feminism and it has been rotten poison <laughs> from the beginning at Seneca Falls. But a lot of the proto-feminism I agree with because it wasn't about women taking over the male roles. It was about women expanding the female role. It was about an appreciation of the female role. It was about, what it, well, women if women take care of the domestic sphere, then can't they be environmentalists? Can't they go outside and study nature and and advocate for the protection of nature because i mean that's our home too what it was expanding the women's sphere and it, it, you know and that was a much better thing but then it turned into we should just get rid of the spheres altogether it should be women should just be should men be and women sphere. should, never it should want. be a, a, a single circle in a venn diagram well if you look yeah. at it like even the first wave of feminism or and even a little bit of the second wave it's like their their main goal was to get on the same economic footing that men were that was their big thing we want to yeah, be able to then, vote we want to be able to have the same jobs we want to have the same positions as ceo we want to be able to get out of the house which is more understandable from a purely sympathetic standpoint where it's like yeah i can see you know if you wanted to work and you wanted to have this career and you wanted to contribute to society in the way that your husband does i can see that from a from a pure, you know, sympathetic, empathetic standpoint, but it ultimately still ended up being a massive, uh, a massive, uh, uh, what's the, what's the word I'm looking for? A massive blow to the family structure, I should say. Yeah, it, the, it absolutely so decentivized women to stay, you know, in the home to get families and to focus on careers. And then as feminism moved on to new issues, they, it just got worse and more, more. I should say, I don't want to use the word toxic, but I should just say more grotesque in the things they were fighting for. Because instead of just getting the same economic and institutional positions that men were having, now it's, we need to emulate the behaviors. So men for all this time have been just about sleeping around and getting drunk and going off with their buddies and just going to the clubs, going to the strip. Well, now we need to do that. Now we need to be extremely promiscuous. Now we need to be uh, ir irreverent, and now we need to be completely, uh, completely uh, lascivious. I'm gonna have a hard time pronouncing lascivious? this. Is it, lascivious. Oh, I don't yeah. know. That might be the 
the word. Yeah, and that's what the third wave was primarily about, just being just it was the first about getting the positions of men and now it's just about behaving like men in the worst ways possible. It's an yeah, and I, to, to 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 femininity itself. It's it's saying you as a woman are not good and you're not you don't have value in your natural traits. You need to have the traits that men have in order to have value. I think I mean, for all the talk that this is this is about, you know, equal value and equal rights and equal all this other stuff, it's it's no no. You are women have very there's some very special things about women. And by taking these things and saying, these things don't matter, these things are worthless, you need to have the traits and the qualities that men have that maybe you have to struggle harder uh, to get, or maybe I don't know, maybe you're a more masculine woman, but still there it's such a slap in the face to women. It's it's you know, women are great as women. <laughs> I say you put that on my grave. Women are That's great. That's why as we women. like them. Yeah, yeah. We like yeah. Men, heterosexual men like women because they aren't men. <laughs> it's a good thing for a woman yeah, to Yeah, we be have enough of those in our life already. Yeah, we have enough men. Women don't be men. We have enough men and they're they're awful. <laughs> uh, I, I know the least about third and fourth wave feminism. I, I know a lot more about the earlier waves. Um, We're Susan B. Anthony. Is that one or two? First, that's first wave. That was so you have proto feminism, which I, I call it that. I don't know if that's the actual term, but I call it proto feminism, where they made a lot of good points. They talked about how men have failed, you know, the, the male patriarchy. We would call it patriarchy now, they wouldn't, but the male driven society has been um the, the, the men are drunkards they they make war for no reason they're destroying the environment uh prisons are a mess we need to fix them you know all of these true things so and, and these things yeah. about <laughs> and these things about hey wait a minute women can do those things what if these things seem to be fitting for women to do why don't you let women do them why are you such chauvinistic pigs and that was true and then it turned into well, one of the, one of the the main things was they realized okay because two of the main things that women wanted these proto feminists was they wanted to abolish slavery and they wanted to to get rid of alcohol you know one of those things good the other thing hold on but the point is they they wanted to get rid of slavery and alcohol and they realized uh, because they were trying to do this the men were not let them participate you know they showed up to these conventions and the women the men would make them sit behind a curtained room and they couldn't talk and they were upset so they went to seneca falls and they demanded the vote and you can read their declaration of sentiments and it's 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 this is what the re, when, the reason i can say i'm an anti-feminist and i'm against feminism is because that declaration that begins feminism is it's heretical drivel they talk about how men have twisted the scriptures to choose to say that women can't be leaders in the church. They, they talk about how only our, only almighty God and conscience can dictate, you know, the limits of your roles in society, that sort of thing. Um, and it's the same drivel that they, they say now. Um, so first wave feminism is about the way it was really, it was about women's suffrage, but the way I would characterize it is they wanted to break down the social barriers between men and women. They wanted to, to take away all of the social structures that separated men and women that made made them different that didn't work because they realized that wait a minute women are those structures exist for a reason and they're reasserting themselves even though we broke them down so the next step was second wave feminism which is break down the natural biological differences between men and women right it's override nature isn't okay now women need the pill right okay well now women need maternity leave uh, like they need paid maternity leave so that they can be mothers and have careers or they need to have contraceptions and they so that they can uh, uh ha, you know enjoy themselves and they can have careers and they don't have to jeopardize their career for a family and that's why they need abortion because they need control over their bodies because well men don't have to get pregnant so they don't get a say it's, it's like they view children as a burden rather than as part of their role and um and then that also didn't work because they figured out that even if you give women all of the tools they need to make themselves like men, they don't want to be men. And I think that's where third and fourth wave feminism comes in is, okay, well, now we need to be pathological anti-feminine and make women think like men, make, drive women to just brain, turn society into a society where women want to be men and men want to be women. Also, also one of the things I, I find amusing because I think it shows that they don't understand 
uh, is there's this, I think it was in the 70s, but in the days of second wave feminism, there was this group of women who went around catcalling men to make a point. I don't think they understand how men think because the kinds of men who can't call women, uh, the no. kinds of men who are fine being cat called by women. <laughs> like it's, it's like it would be like if someone if some creep exposed himself right to, to women and women are like, well, we're going to get back at you by exposing ourselves to you. We all know why that's a bad plan. It's the same thing here. I don't think they understood that. I don't think it, they understood it, that it, men it, it, don't mind being cat. That's why men can't call women because they think that the women are like them and don't mind it. They enjoy it. And it ended in the same way that most other progressive movements do, which is they start with something that seems to be uh, well-intentioned and even has some very good points, like you said, promo-feminism, where men just sort of, they went off and did their own thing. They didn't appreciate the feminine role as much as they could have, and they got drunk, and they got, you know, there was a big wave of just, uh, lasciviousness and pursuit of self, and so there was a there was a completely justified gripe with that sort of mindset. But then, when it started, which again I do believe to be on a you know bad sort of solution uh, based idea, it got away from them eventually, as most progressive movements do. Because first and second wave feminism were hard line anti-pornography. They because they thought it was demeaning, they thought it was insulting to women, they were turning them into slabs of meat for men's entertainment. And that was completely true. That is completely 100 percent true. But then third wave feminism is like, you know what? I can be uh I can be a porn star too. We're we're going to embrace this side of our uh of our femininity, which isn't even feminine. They're gonna they're twisting their natural uh, gifts of being attractive or of being uh, or of being childbearers and saying, yeah, we're just going to fetishize this and we're going to make it uh, we're just going to make it completely about entertainment, completely about our own empowerment. And now you'll see a bunch of first wave feminists completely drop off of the feminist train because they're like, you know what, this doesn't look like anything that I was planning on, you know, doing in terms of uh, how this all started. Because we just wanted careers, we just wanted to be appreciated, and now it's like you're acting just like the same, you know, type of people, the same type of men that we were railing against. And now it's gotten completely away from them. You look in the window and you can you can no longer tell the difference between the pigs and the humans. <laughs> Well, All right, yeah. so it's it's easy enough for us for us dudes to sit around and talk about women, right, and, and, and yeah. feminism, because uh, oh, I love women. <laughs> well, so what what I want to do is 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 kind of point in the direction of okay, so that, that's that's feminism, that's that's femininity. What about what about masculinity? What is the expectation? The biblical expect the biblical, the Christian expectation of of masculinity. What should be expected? Of men, how men behave, how men treat one another, how men treat women, how how men express themselves. I mean, what does it mean to be a biblically masculine man? Mm. You'll find so much good stuff in Proverbs. Like the whole the whole book is just little little phrases about the godly man versus the versus the sinful man, the wicked versus the righteous. And there's so many good things in there talking both about specifically um, the a type of good woman, a type of bad woman, a type of good man, and a type of bad man. Um, there are some scriptures that I could research if one of you wants to take over. But yeah, I think a good place to start would be Proverbs where it talks about things like, you know, a good man is honest. A good man is always forthright. A good man is always looking to be as be as uh charitable and as virtuous as he can possibly be while the unrighteous man is constantly looking to deceive to further his own ambitions to further his own uh carnal desires things of that nature but yeah yeah go ahead and check them out solo what do you think it means to be a man 
well, I mean, fundamentally, to be a man is to be the, the one who provides seed, and the, the, to be a woman is to be the one who receives seed. Okay. Uh, and all of the other, but all of the other differences <laughs> come from that because obviously they're practic they're physical practicalities to that system, which is why we see so many similarities across species. Um, you know, th that means that well, if you're bearing the children, then the woman also feeds the children out of her body even after the child is born, and that means that the woman is going to be uh just practically speaking that means the woman has to take care of the child and well, the man well, goes than, off well more than just kind of a, a biological male i, I know I'm, I'm building up okay I'm, I'm building up all right um so that means that the man will go out and and what we would be called the breadwinner you know men are more biologically expendable as well and that's where we get that is if a man dies uh well that's fine his wife can just remarry and in let's say pre-christian society there is polygyny as as was was a thing that existed if we're just being frank um whereas if a woman dies well that's a huge thing because uh women women can only have one child at most about once a year you know that at most uh and she has to she's the one investing her actual body into that child and so she's going to be more passionate more more domestic focused and that and so on uh whereas men but men because we are expendable and because we are the ones who go out and hunt and because we have to take chances because if you don't take chances you never succeed it creates this um this part of masculinity that people forget when they're talking about toxic masculinity when they speak of because people think that toxic masculinity is masculinity but they forget that one of the most crucial parts of masculinity is self-sacrifice and that's that's present at the very biological level because the man gives right it's the man when the child is conceived it's the man giving of himself and later on when he's feeding the child the woman might be providing out of her, her physical body but the man is the one who risked his life to get the food the woman ate uh the, the man is because the man is stronger he has obligations toward the weaker vessel and that's why our our archetypal human being the the perfect man is christ who who is tortured to death in the most brutal way that was humans ever devised and he did it for the sake of his bride and that's why saint everyone leaves off well i, I say everyone but people who want to paint a misogynistic view of religion leave off the part where saint paul says um that the man must lay down his life for his wife the way that the, the Christ laid down his his life for the church, which is, uh, it's not a, that's not just a simple, you know, dying heroically. That, that means being tortured to death in the most shameful way possible. And I think that's actually, I think, why feminism has succeeded is because men have this instinct to lay down their lives for women and they want their wives to be happy. They want their wives to be even to some extent glorified they want their wives and their mothers to be honored and so they they kind of roll over in in in, in some ways there's this tendency of well you know my, my wife or my mother my daughter wants this great thing and i want her to have that so let's do that let's let's sacrifice our even societal roles and and but of course that that gets twisted into instead of self-sacrifice that's just neglect of your responsibility uh but to be a man is to it's to have the strength to do what needs to be done and also the willingness to give up to give everything up for the sake of accomplishing the good what about response do you think that there's a you think that there's a biblical responsibility for things like uh capacity for violence and strength and uh, stuff like that. I mean, I'm thinking, you know, 1980s, 90s movies, action star, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Stallone, stuff like that. Um, that there's often, there's often, this is often portrayed as this is, you know, that's what a man is. A man takes care of business. A man protects his own. I, a man. I mean, I think, I think that is biblical. Yes. I mean, if you look at the, the Old Testament figures, people like David are very much that. He, he's not he's not the stereotypical man but he is he is it's not because he falls he short of his ten thousands he, he's more than that he is the man who kills ten thousands and also weeps over his his family the man who who hides himself in his room for a week begging god to to, to spare his son 
you know, the man who breaks down in tears over his adultery and his murder. Um, but he is also the man who kills his, his, his tens of thousands, the man who slaughters two-thirds of the Moabites uh, to keep them under control, and the, the, the one who, who kills Philistines and even is a mercenary for the Philistines uh, for a while. Like, he is all of those things. He, he's not just a Stallone figure. He's certainly not a stoic, unmoved figure who only cries when his best friend dies in battle or something, but he is uh, he is a warrior. And of course, he doesn't get to build the temple because of that. But then you see that Solomon Solomon goes too far the other way, and he's so capitulating to his wives and so peaceful and, and so non-confrontational. And so um, I, you could say he's almost nerdy in the sense that he solves things using his brains rather than his strength. Solomon goes so far the other way that he that he falls. So it's it's like it's David and Solomon. Neither one is perfect, but they're two different kinds of masculinity, and they both have their their deficiencies. But they're both masculine. Yeah, the good man is the warrior in the garden, so to speak, a man who is able to function in a time of peace while being prepared for war. Someone who is able to control his emotions while not while not uh well not hiding that i should say i should say there's someone who doesn't shame their emotions like we see this too often in our culture that men need to be more in touch with their feelings they need to be more emotionally outspoken they need to be more expressive and that's in response to this you know fact that men do tend to bottle up their emotions much more than women do because more than more than not we just don't care to talk about it we just don't want to have to go through this whole thing of going through all of our you know deep-seated problems or going over this long lecture about how to how to feel better about ourselves we just want to get things done we we don't want to talk about it we don't want to feel about it we just want to get things done get solutions to our problems done and then just be over with it and yeah. so emotion is that, often it's like a different language Different language for men. I mean, in terms of resolving emotion. I, oh, completely. This is, you know, there are plenty of women that I know that can express their emotion far better than I can. And I, and I can say, you know, me feel bad, me hurt, hurt. And, and, I, and I feel the emotion, but a lot of times, you know, men tend to be, tend to be solution-oriented. Well, how do, I, how do I fix this thing? Do I eat a bunch of food? Do I drink, you know, do I drink a bunch of alcohol? How do I fix this problem of me heart hurt, me feel bad? Whereas somebody who understands the language of emotion, uh, maybe they can talk through it. And maybe, I mean, this is one of the reasons that God, I think, gives, gives, us, gives us women. But some men also have the capacity to kind of understand emotion. But, yeah, I think there's a, there's a struggle because there's, there's a degree of self-control that we should have as, as men in terms of controlling the expression of of our emotion it's not i would say that the david is not uncontrolled in the expression of his emotion and one of the greatest examples of this is with the death of his child now his he's grieving he's mourning he's begging god to spare the life of his child his child dies and then what happens immediately he washes himself and he goes to eat and everybody says you know what what happened david's not crazy he says well before i was mourning because god may spare my child but now that I know my child is in heaven, uh, and, I'll, and I'll see him again. Um, there is, we can feel emotion without allowing emotion to, to have complete control over us, and we can express express emotion, especially uh, sometimes because it's healthy for us, but sometimes because it's helpful for for other people to to understand. I mean, Jesus expresses emotion. Jesus wept. The shortest verse in the Bible is important for us to understand. That was an emotional moment. Jesus is emotional in the in the garden uh, when he's praying. He's emotional. Uh, he's emotional when he flips tables. You know, zeal for his house consumes him. There there are aspects of emotion, but but Jesus never loses control of his emotion. Though he is grieving, though he is 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 sweating blood in the garden, uh, he still goes to the cross. He picks himself up. He does what a man does, and he, and he gets what needs to be done. He gets it done, even while he's feeling the emotion. All I mean, I can't imagine the type of grief that he was undergoing, just thinking about, you know, the crucifixion that he was going to have to endure. And yet, I think I think that that's an absolute aspect of Christian masculinity. 
And that's the thing about uh, controlling your emotions is that it's not that you don't feel them or you can't express them. It's that what you do about it afterward and what you do about it in the moment is ultimately under your control. And that that especially happens during moments of grief or during moments of anger, I think, is the big one, because that is often the thing that is associated with uh, toxic masculinity. When people talk about toxic masculinity, it's usually in regards to domestic violence, which is definitely something that affects a lot of women that has affected men as well. But when it comes to things like violent crime or uh, crimes of passion, men definitely have a tendency to uh, to fall victim to that mindset. And it's primarily because these men, they do not have control over their emotions. They let anger, which is just as much an emotion as any other one, uh, they let it control them, let it control their actions, and then they act out on the, on that lack of self-control. And when they do that and it falls on another person, that is the ultimate form of, I would say, anti-masculinity. It's a, fa- it's a failure of their masculinity. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's not masculine failure. to lose control. It's not masculine to be, you know, to, to go into a barbarian rage and, and to lose, you know, to, to see red. I mean, again, you think about, you know, Rambo and all these other things, but I think that's one of the, one of the times where it's so, it's so clearly depicted incorrectly where you have, well, this is a masculine, you know, look at this guy. He's a fighter. He's, he's, he's a wild dog. He wants to get off the chain and just tear people up. That's, that's not masculine. That's childish and animalistic, if, if anything. And we're not called to be beasts that are, you know, bound to our emotions, bound to the passions. That's, that's the opposite of what Christian masculinity is. Uh, Sola was talking about that a lot of, a lot of masculinity is defined by, defined by our, by our biology, the biology of, you know, the mammalian dichotomy. Uh, yes, that's true. And then some, and then some. So in addition to our our definition of masculine from biology, God has also called us to a higher, a higher calling to be men, to control ourselves and not be wild beasts that every time somebody insults us that we lash back out, but that we turn the other cheek. Oh, somebody insults us? Okay. Or, you know, to take vengeance into our own hands. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Um, It's, yeah, it's self-control. Self-control is one of the, you know, is I'm pretty sure. The last but not least of the fruits of the Spirit. Yeah, oh. that's, yeah. Go ahead, Sol. Yeah, this is, well, actually, the point that I'm about to raise is one that I think it was meant to be the first episode of our Bananas podcast that we were supposed to do like three years ago and still haven't gotten done, but he promises <laughs> it'll be done this summer. Uh, but it's it's the notion of, well, originally, and I, I might still do it, but it's, I, I tongue, tongue-in-cheek, I co-opted the language of the gender spectrum to mean something entirely different, which is this, sorry, this recognition that reality, okay, so what they've done is they've taken gender, which is the best I can figure is an abstraction of, from sex. So sex is just the biological reality and gender is the, the more abstracted version of that. It's applying the out expression. It's something by, by, it's making an analogy to sex and that's what gender is. So then, in that case, reality itself exists on a spectrum of some things are more masculine, some things are more feminine, but everything is actually a union of the two. What God is is because God unites Adam and Eve. What God has bound, let not man unbind, that everything is masculine and feminine. Even God himself, when he speaks of begetting the son, he says, from the womb I have begotten thee. God the Father says he has a womb, that there is this... Now, obviously, we, we don't talk much about the divine feminine for a reason because I'm Scripture calling, doesn't. I'm calling but... your priest up. You're getting excommunicated tonight. No, no, no. The pre... <laughs> no communion for you tomorrow. I, yes. I, I, won't, I won't elaborate on that joke. Okay. Um, <laughs> the, but there is that element there. there are, God has feminine attributes. He multiple times says, calls himself. He says he has like a womb. Like a hen or that gathers its brood yeah, under, under the wings or something. There is this feminine element to God that we can't comprehend. And the way that he's revealed his femininity is in creation itself. Creation is his bride, specifically the church, because 
when I say creation, I'm not saying that in a in the pagan idea that the material world is like a god, but rather in the sense that man is the head of creation, and creation is like the extension of man. And so we are his bride, his his even his mother. He says uh, we're his mother, um, we're his. Of course, we're his children. Um, but sometimes he uses that. Uh, you know, he says that Jerusalem feeds. Bride. Yeah, but he says that Jerusalem feeds uh, her children with her breasts. That that comes up multiple times. That we suckle on the breasts of Jerusalem, and um, and there's the, even the, there's there's this sense. It's it's not uh, explicit, but sometimes you get this idea that this hint of maternal relation maternal relationship between God and His children. It's it's very very subtle, obviously, but. You know, God has, he fulfills the perfections of both, both parentages, and he gives us the perfections of both parentages. So the church is a mother, but she's governed by men. So your relationship to the community is one of uh, maternal, you know, mother-child relationship, but your relationship to the leaders of the church is a father-son relationship, right? It's both. God is, has both masculine and feminine attributes. The church has both masculine and feminine attributes. Individuals have both masculine and feminine attributes because, on the one hand, what you were saying about this—it's not just biological—is because we have spirit, and spirit is generally masculine in relation to matter. The very word "matter," if you go back far enough, comes from the word "mother." Um, whereas the word "pattern," which is uh, in some ways is related to spirit, comes from the word "father." Um, we're called to have control because. It's masculine to have control. That's what a, a male does. But we're, so we're called to control our bodies, our emotions, all of that. All of that, that is, in fact, the fathers will allegorically interpret the statements about men and men's rule over the women to refer to uh, how an individual controls his emotions. That all that is feminine in a man in relation to his spirit needs to be controlled by the masculine spirit. And so in one sense, toxic masculinity is actually feminine because a man is letting himself be ruled by his passions. But there's another sense in which it actually is a kind of toxic masculinity because man is not letting himself be feminine in relation to God because he's, he's it's pride. He's viewed himself as he wants so much control that he won't let himself be controlled by what is higher. He won't be God's bride. He won't allow himself to have a father because he has to be the father of everyone else. Um, it, it's too much control. Yeah, you forget to be kind. You forget to be. You have to be. Forget to be understanding, which is what Proverbs talks about a lot. When he says, when the scriptures describe what a good woman looks like, a lot of it describes someone who's very compassionate, someone who's very understanding, someone who's not contemptuous, someone who's Although not. Ironically, the, the chapter that is dedicated to women uh, says that they make a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're hard workers who make money for their families. It's, that's the ideal woman. So, so I, I, wonder if, I wonder if the transverse is true. You're talking about kind of toxic masculinity is, is, is the masculine inhabiting feminine traits that are inappropriate. I wonder if, so, so if, if masculinity is, is control, uh, and then toxic masculinity, true toxic masculinity is masculinity minus control, uh, with masculinity is a man being subjected to his emotions, whereas he should have control over his emotions. And, and I'm wondering about the transverse there. If, if toxic femininity would be uh, a woman trying to control those things, which she has no authority over, or I mean I don't know. This is I'm sure this is going to get me down a road. Yeah, I mean that's the wicked that's the wicked stepmother. Yeah. Oh right? yeah. That's, yeah. That's the, that's the woman where she perceives something is wrong in the household and she wants to fix it, and so she she does something she she's not supposed to. And of course there's there's the other element. You, men can be too masculine when they, again the prideful man the 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 ruthless tyrant who expresses too much control. And there's that kind of woman too. The woman who is just ruled by her emotions and she is a sissy so to speak and she is just uh she might even actually like she can blend them just like men blend the different kinds women blend them too they're they control men with their emotions they let them 
they have this emotional display. They get carried away by their passions, and they use it to manipulate other people and to get them to do what they want. Uh, you, you know, that's a and then you can look at it as the scales between order and chaos to describe the masculine, the feminine. While there is a lot to uh, a lot to achieve in order, and you want to strive for order, there comes a point where you hold on too tightly that you squeeze the life out of everything, and that it becomes so un it becomes so unmovable, so un so unforgiving, so un, uh, unrelenting that it just consumes you and brings you right back into an almost chaotic state of just absolute unadulterated control where yeah, nothing else matters. It's all about your own. It's all about fulfilling your own desires. Funnily enough, by trying to keep everything in control, your motivation becomes it's all about what I want to be, what I want everything to be, what I want it to look like. So, what... yeah, I mean, yin and yang. Oh. If you look at the yin and yang symbol, it's not just black and white. It is there is black and the white and white and the black. It's it's there has you can never have pure order or pure chaos. And I think that another example of toxic femininity is the the woman who shelters her children. That she is so con compassionate, so concerned for their safety that she wraps them in bubble wrap and doesn't let them go outside so they never get hurt. That that's also toxic femininity. And that's and then when they get let out, they're absolutely destroyed. She's so so compassionate that she she is over overbearing and controlling. Well, I mean, I would say in that that aspect is is that's her, you know, doing the control of the masculinity. But I would say that the other that the other side of the spectrum is where she's so loose, or or the man in the household is so loose and just says, kind of do whatever you want with your life. I'm not going to tell my kids what to do. I refuse, you know, I'll let my let my kids make all the decisions for themselves. Decide who they are. Decide what they do. Decide what they 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 go on the internet and who they're friends with and all these other things. Uh, kind of know, describing the deadbeat dad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is this is a fit. So if that that would be toxic masculinity in the sense that the, the 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 man is not is not exercising the authority that he has been given and called commanded to exercise so what yeah and and oh, that's ahead. both masculine that's both feminine and that it's passive you know it's it's uh, relinquishing control it's thinking well i don't want to interfere but it's also masculine in that it's that you know that uh sort of rough yeah you know you Get what, throw them in the deep end, let them figure it out themselves, don't interfere kind of attitude. It's both masculine and feminine, depending well, on the attitude. Yeah, depending on the attitude. I think I think you could do the same thing with two attitudes. You could do one attitude is, oh, he's got to toughen up and figure it out one way. Or you can do another attitude of, oh, well, I don't want to make my choice. I wanna, don't want to make his choices for him. And he's an independent soul, and he can make his own choices and decide for himself. Like, they both they both end in the same, in the same behavior and the same poor, screwed-up kid. But, but they're both kind of... <laughs> there are two approaches uh, up the same up the same hill. Yeah, and the other hell being, it, it can either be the abusive father who tries to micromanage his household because he's in charge, or the the overbearing mother who doesn't want her children to get hurt, and so she she again she micromanages them. And it's it's two different reasons. One is con one is a desire for control, and the other is a desire for safety. But they both end up as tyranny. It sounds like a something to do with politics, but. Rather than getting into that, um, so I, so I want to ask a question. It's true, though. It, it is true, but don't get into it because then I'll have to start a new episode. <laughs> no, um, I mean, you could say the house is the greatest battlefield of politics oh, there was. Yeah, it it is. But uh, you know, the personal is political. <laughs> yeah, shut up. The uh, <laughs> okay. So so the question I I wanted to ask, springing off of this, is okay. So. You, we, we've kind of we've kind of defined, talked about what masculinity is, what femininity is, things like that. As a man, what traits, what traits should kind of universally be developed? What aspects of yourself should universally be practiced uh, and gotten better at uh, to to be to be a better man, to be more biblically masculine? Um, I well, mean, the, yeah, go for it. The, the most basic one would be to remember that. Really, the, those are just different emphases on the same virtues. Men and women are supposed to have the same virtues, but they maybe express themselves differently in, because of their different social niches. Uh, and so the, the first one will always be would be love, that you must love God and then love others. 
and there is there is a kind again there's a kind of femininity in that because it's the love we have for God is the love of a the bride for whom uh, and men have to be able to to surrender their own pride and self-will in order to have a proper relationship with God. Yeah, absolutely. That's fundamental. What do you think, Stigma? What, is, what, what trait comes to your mind that men should exercise? Well, we've talked a lot about self-control already, and I think that's a, that's a given. I think something else that is lacking is, I would say, willingness to... Willingness to surrender, I think, was a good one that Ecclesia talked about a little bit, is that there is a epidemic of narcissism and pride going on, particularly in this country. And a lot of that stems from this, this desire to hold on to our own sin, to hold on to our own passions. And... Anything that threatens that, we tend to lash out at. And I think for men in particular, it can be so many different things. It could be whether it's whether it's more hedonistic, like simple, oh, I just want to sleep around with people. I want to be able to go out with the boys and drink until I'm seeing triple. It's It could be many things. And so I think the willingness to just surrender certain things, to sacrifice is a big one that I think is the reason why so many relationships these days and even within the church is we're not willing to sacrifice our pride, sacrifice our status, sacrifice whatever needs to happen in order to obtain that ultimate good. So I think willingness to sacrifice is one that should be universally uh, continued to be taught. Yeah, the uh, I mean, Christ gives us probably the uh, easily the best example. There's, you know, there's figures of Christ in the Old and the New Testament, well, mostly the Old Testament, but Christ gives us kind of the, the, the best example of, of, you know, this is, this is what it's like to be, to be a man, sacrifice, you know, sacrifice and, and, and overcoming the passions, being, being willing to be hungry, being willing to uh, be alone, um, being willing to endure, endure pain, love for one another, um, um, submitting to the will of the father loving those around him these are these are easily i mean a thousand verses jump to mind for any of these for for examples uh i think about um to to you know i i think those probably those two are kind of some of the core ones love love sacrifice and then probably after that i would say probably self-control there's there's also i mean we're not we are not Christ. <laughs> we are not the same as Christ. So we can't do everything that he does, but we can emulate a lot of his, a lot of his, a lot of his traits. Uh, and, and one of the ones that, that, that I absolutely push for is, is power. God has the capacity for great and extreme amounts of violence and destruction coupled with, coupled with the desire to use it in love and in a controlled way fashion you know walk softly and carry a big stick kind of kind of idea i think that there is there is a christian obligation um for for men to say you know i i have to use my i may one day have to use my power to help somebody to defend somebody to even potentially inflict violence on another person and after I have already developed my love for God, after I'm developing, you know, my love for my neighbor, after I'm developing self-control and, and control over the passions and sacrifice, self-sacrifice and stuff like that, I also do need to develop capacity for power, capacity for violence. Whether this means you're a big hulking guy, whether this means you take martial arts classes, you you know, you're you're in shape, you're taking care of your body. This means going to the range, practicing how to use a gun. You know, whether this means making sure some way, let's say you're not physically capable of doing it, but making sure some way that your your family is going to be protected. This capacity for violence could even include, okay, take your wife to the shooting range. Uh, maybe you're not a big hulking guy. Maybe you've got, you know, really poor vision. You can't shoot that well. But possibly, you know, defending your family, defending others means teaching others around you how to, you know, how to defend themselves as, as well. And I think that there's kind of, I mean, it's easy to, to, to joke about, you know, you know, Christian Tradchad type, you know, oh, I'm going to be Andrew Tate. I'm going to, well, yeah. <laughs> I'll joke on Andrew Tate all day because he doesn't, 
exemplify, I don't think, the Christian virtues of no, there's a reason for God the and self-sacrifice and, and, and controlling oh, your passions. Uh, good grief. But, I mean, the other thing, uh, just there, there, there is a capacity where you, we want to joke and say, ha-ha, you know, you know, being a Christian isn't about being, you know, big, strong men. Well, to a degree, it actually is. I think there actually is a calling where, where God wants you to be. He wants you to be strong. A an element of Christian masculinity is strength and power. Those are elements of God that God has given to men to develop uh, intentionally. They're not things to be ashamed of as, oh, you know, I'm not some brutish barbarian. No, you need to develop your your body as you are already working on your, you know, your spiritual life and your emotional well-being. You need to, you need to be able to be strong, but you need to control that. And, and it's so easy, you know, as with any of these things, it's so easy to, to, to run so far in one direction that you lose sight of the goal, you know, just because you're, you're an expert fighter and an expert shot an expert at whatever, if you take every insult and turn that into a fight, if you fight every chance you get, then you're, that's not the, again, that's as we talked about this before, that's not masculine. That's a lack of self-control. You need to learn when to turn the other cheek. Uh, an example. So, again, I'm not not a fan of Andrew Tate. I haven't really heard that much of what he says. So I just think he looks like a dweeb. Um, but uh, Jocko Williams, who you probably heard of him a bunch. I think he's a he's a SEAL or former. Good SEAL. old Jocko. Yeah, the he, most military looking dude that ever military. Yeah, the guy. Yeah, uh, he was. I think he was on a Joe Rogan podcast, and he, and he was talking to he was talking to Rogan about you know jujitsu and you know fighting on the ground versus versus boxing and stuff. And, and he talked about. Um, his number one favorite move to use in a fight when somebody squares up, like they're going to, they're going to start boxing him is to run away. And it's this thing where, I mean, this guy's, he's big. He is a good fighter. He is objectively a very capable of, of extreme amounts of precise violence. And yet he has the capacity to just run, to, to run away from, to avoid a conflict. Not all conflicts should be avoided, but realistically, most of them, most of them should there. I mean, how many times could you get into a fight in a day if you really wanted to? Um, <laughs> well, I guess any sort of gangland uh, will will get an example of that where people bump into each other and then and then fight about it. But it's, to seek war is extremely unwise. To be prepared for it is always exactly uh, yeah parabellum. Uh, my my father's I I don't remember if it was his jujitsu or karate instructor, but one of the first things that he taught the class was this move where you put one foot in front of the other and then repeat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, to get away from the fight, yeah. but of course, the, the other part of men need to be able to use their powers. It's as this union. I think it's, it was Carl Jung's idea, the shadow, that you have to incorporate all of the dark elements of yourself. Because if you if you don't admit that you have that power, then for one thing, you won't be able to use it. But more importantly, I think more dangerously, if you don't know you have it, you might use it. To, you might use it accidentally, and then someone gets hurt. You know, like if an adult plays with a child and doesn't acknowledge that he is much bigger than the child, he will hurt the child. Yeah. Uh, and if, if a man has a relationship with a woman and doesn't acknowledge that he is a man and she is a woman, she, he's going to hurt her. Um, but and, and then on the other hand, if you if you don't incorporate your shadow and you don't acknowledge that you have this capacity and you don't want to use it, then um, you don't have that instrument. You don't have that tool to be able to use. You know, you, you can't use violence when you want to, uh, and you just end up being a fractured person. You aren't complete. You haven't incorporated fully, integrated yourself. Yeah. Um, and an example of a coward in scripture is is uh, Barak. Is it is that the one with Deborah? I think it was Barak, who uh, Deborah says, "You are going to go and you're going to defeat this general in battle," and he says. I want you to come with me. Oh yeah. Like he's scared. Yeah. <laughs> he wants the prophetess to come with him. And she says that the judgment for that is that a woman will kill the, the general instead because Barak was too scared to do it himself. What and so Yale says Yale uses uh not sexually, but she uses seduction essentially. You know, she invites him into the house, she she gives him warm milk, you know, makes him comfortable, and then she drives a nail through his head. <laughs> like um what a way to go. She did seduces him into death, and and then later on Judith, Judith does the same thing with Holofernes, but that's that's not relevant to this. Um, that it's an example of a man failing in his duty. He doesn't 
he's cowardly and he 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 can't he doesn't want to fight the battle on his own and so he uh he's punished el sol it wasn't he wasn't cowardice but it was it was let's say pride it was his, he refused to use his power to kill agag and goliath. and and the saul, saul and goliath that was cowardice i, I yeah um, yeah in a manner of speaking it was it was a reasonable cowardice then it was no one thought they could take goliath but at the same time they should have they should have been talking to a prophet or something they should have like known if god is with us then we will be victorious somehow and they they weren't willing to and it, it took a, a shepherd yeah, it's it's a it's, shepherd boy in that story it's not that well and then Goliath came out every morning, and then the best men from Israel went out to fight Goliath, and, and man after man was defeated. And King Saul himself, the, 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 the giant king with head and shoulders above every Israelite, went out to fight him, and he too was defeated, and nobody could defeat him. And then finally, David comes along. That's not how the story goes. The story goes is all the Israelites cowered back in fear, including the king who was supposed to represent this. God's choice, literally the Christ, the anointed, God's chosen king, Saul sits in a tent, and when a little boy, well, not a little boy, a youth comes in, he says, why don't you put on my armor? When do you put your own armor on, Saul? You, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Warrior, go put your armor on. Go out and kill Goliath. Won't yeah, and it's God so, protect you? And the contrast is so striking. David can't wear Saul's armor. It's too heavy. It just hinders him. So that means Saul could, Saul could wear it. He was big enough right. to wear this armor. This shepherd boy couldn't. And he he's too scared to fight. But David is too small to even wear the armor, and yet he is willing to to hurl a stone at Goliath because he he has this trust in God that it is his duty to fight because no one else will, and he trusts that God will deliver Israel. Something and then he cuts off Goliath's head. Too. Yeah, right. That's a story. That's a detail that gets left out of most tellings. Is that he oh, cuts yeah. off Goliath's head with his sword, and then he keeps Goliath's sword as a trophy. Yeah, right. That's Goliath's a very masculine thing, yeah. and that's an example of. David isn't uh, bloodthirsty. He's not a tyrant, but he is, he, and he's not just not a wimp. He glories in his his victory, and he keeps the trophies of his his bloodshed when it was ordered and righteous bloodshed. Yeah, I mean, if you look at any of these Old Testament characters, which were extremely masculine in the traditional sense, Samson is a big one. Like he is. He is the man. He is him, so but to speak. He's also a to- he's kind of a toxic male, though, because he's exactly, a- and that's the thing. It's like, but each one so falls of short of men. being Christ. Yeah, yeah. Each one of these men, and it's often a woman, funnily enough. Each of them has a big weakness that is exploited, that is shown on display for all to see. And for Samson, it was his pride. It was his arrogance. It was his, you know, his. I, I think it was. Go ahead. Well, no, I, I agree with it. Was everything comes under pride, but for Samson, it was also his lust. The, the fathers oh, yeah. say that was kind of what did him in. Was yeah, there was a pride in that he was kind of bratty, but I think that's a lot of that. There's a tendency to excuse that because what he did a lot of times wasn't wrong. But then you have the issue with Delilah, where it's hard to find an excuse for it. Like, what was it? Could his excuse have been? Like, why did he do what he did? Oh, and that yeah, doesn't seem to be 100% one. plus. I like this quote from, uh, uh, I'm going to quote General Mattis because, of course, I will. He's actually got a couple of quotes that when I was in, when I was actively in the Marines, I was doing a, I used to think General Mattis had the coolest quote. Him and uh, Chesty Puller. Chesty Puller's got some great, great quotes. But this uh, Marine General, General Mattis, still alive, um, kind of done some stuff that i don't agree with now but he's got some really great quotes i'm going to paraphrase one because he uses a he uses a naughty word but i i think that this is such a this is such a great example of what it means to be uh to be masculine in in, in a sense of uh violent capacity he says i come in peace i didn't bring artillery but i'm pleading with you with tears in my eyes if if you mess with me i'll kill you all <laughs> And he says this. He says this, I believe, to the Iraqi leaders uh, following the invasion of uh, in the invasion of Iraq. And it's this thing where, um, especially, especially when if you're put in a role as a man, if you're put into a role as a as a, as a husband or or a father or somebody who's um, who's expected to to look out for others, is you have to have you have to be willing to say, look, I'll turn the other cheek if you're insulting me. But that being said, 
you know, if you attack, if you attack, if you're a shepherd, for example, and the wolf attacks the flock, you kill the wolf. You don't just, you, oh, well, you know, I've got 99 more sheep. Um, the, 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 the picture of right. Jesus as the good shepherd is often, I mean, there is Jesus, you know, carrying the, the, the dirty, filthy sheep over his shoulders and the, and the, and the sheep is soiling itself on his shoulders and covered in briars and, and filthy and nasty and stupid. And, 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 and he's being compassionate and kind and soft to the sheep and saving it. But the shepherd is also the one, you remember David is killing lions and bears, uh, and, and, and wolves. Oh my, he's killing violently ending the lives of of violent beasts that's that's part of masculinity is is the defense the defense of others and, and that's why i would say pacifism just as a whole like extreme pacifism is extremely unbiblical i've even had conversations with people who were faced with the question if a man entered your house and he had your wife and child at gunpoint, would you at that point defend them and kill the intruder? And he said no, because he's that dedicated to pacifism. And so there there comes a point where you have to think, you know, as much as you don't want to, you know, take one of God's creations out of the picture and deny them the chance of reconciliation and redemption it still comes to a point where you are given a task to defend the innocent especially when it comes to children especially children like even jesus one of his one of his most one of his most like blunt verses uh is when he says that it is better for a man to have a millstone uh, attached around his neck and for him to be thrown into the sea to drown than to cause one of these children to stumble or to sin. Like, that is extremely, like, visceral, violent imagery. So there, there is definitely a point where you can't just turn the cheek and sit on the sidelines when other people are in the picture. Yeah, the verse the verse about turning the other cheek, I think, is often misunderstood and, and misrepresented as as pure pacifism. It's not. Right. Uh, when someone slaps you on the cheek, I mean, unless this is one punch man, if somebody slaps you on the cheek, that's not going to kill you. That's an insult. It may sting, but if somebody slaps you on the cheek, that sting goes away. You'll be fine. Suck it up. Turn the other cheek. Part of masculinity is turn the other cheek. But that's not the same thing as... Okay, somebody slaps you on the cheek. Somebody somebody points a gun at your child is not somebody slaps you on the cheek. There's a very big distinction between the two, those those two things. Uh, Martin Luther yeah. talks about the um, the Ten Commandments. He's got he's got a pamphlet or something that says like what should we do with Moses or what should we do with the Ten Commandments or something like that. Since you know Christ has fulfilled all the Ten Commandments, what 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 good are they? What 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 should we gather from them? And part of his his explanation of the Fifth Commandment is not just a negative of do not murder, but the the positive of that we have an obligation as Christians to defend our neighbors as well as I mean presumably ourselves. This means you know suicide is a sin. This also means um, that if somebody is 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 you know harming you. Uh, physically harming you, that's, it's a sin to continue to let them do that. You have to, there is, there is an aspect of self-defense in, in, in the prescription against murder. There is an aspect of defense of others in the prescription um, against murder. That's, I mean, according to Luther, you know, the church father. So there's, people have a, a way of, on all sides, they have a way of misreading the Sermon on the Mount to the point that they utterly miss the whole point of it, which so you have on the one hand the Anabaptists who who do this more blatantly because they say ah turn the other cheek means you can never defend yourself right but that is to that is but that reading is exactly what Christ is is reprimanding is he's saying you heard eye for an eye and you thought that meant that you should always get retribution but I'm telling you don't do that but he's but you do the exact same thing when you hear turn the other cheek and you think that it's a universal rule because his point is stop interpreting the law as a, a, a list of rules. It's not like a, a, a description of here's how you behave under these exact circumstances and, or this is a rule that you follow or that you follow. He's saying stop trying to follow it to the letter and listen to the spirit of it. 
And I think we can also do that, though, when we try to... So there was this medieval idea um, that, that when Christ said that the, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, they, they had this idea that was vaguely based on descriptions from, may have vaguely been based on or influenced interpretations of descriptions by pilgrims, but it's not actually true. It's, it's completely made up that there is this gate in Jerusalem called the eye of the needle and that the only way a camel could get through it is if it took off all of its uh, baggage and, and crawled through on its knees. And that's not true. But that's an example of trying to follow the letter to the point of changing the meaning of the letter and then saying, well, see, that's what it means. But I think what we're supposed to take is, no, he is saying uh, the letter is whatever, whatever violence is done to you, don't resist, don't resist the evil one, let anything be done to you. But if you were to take that strictly, you would be missing the point the same way that the people who wanted retribution, did, which is that he's not, what he's saying is your disposition, your heart should be that you never want to inflict damage on anyone. You should never want to cause harm. You should always be willing to endure whatever is necessary. But if you if you want to apply that, that principle, um, uh, consistently, that principle of love and mercy, it is not loving and merciful to let innocence be killed and harmed because you to, don't want to appease your conscience, no less. Right. It, like, that's not loving and merciful to let your family come to harm because you wanted to preserve the life of the person harming them. Sometimes you have to, to make that judgment of my family is more important than this random violent person. And so, unfortunately, I have to let him die rather than let him kill my family or harm my family. You know, I have to, we have to get to do something to these evildoers rather than let them harm the common good. Is You know, one of the, the images of masculinity in the Psalms is the king saying, I have not let evildoers in my household. I have not let there be evildoers in my kingdom. Every day I go throughout the city and, and purify it of these people. That's one of the, um, the images of masculinity is the, the king who purges the kingdom. Thank you guys so much. Uh, it was a good discussion, I think, on, on femininity, feminism, Christian masculinity, violence, uh, all sorts of things relating to that. Thank you so much to Christ Court for, for hosting this event. God bless you and take care.